Joe Dodds. Uh, thanks for joining Environmental as Anything today. It's a great pleasure to be here, Sean. Thank you. You have been through the ringer in the climate. Um, you've been through the uh, the bushfire, the floods, the pandemic. Um, so you've got good cause to be uh, calling for uh, climate action. Can you just quickly give us a bit of a background on your experience uh, in your home as the fires were approaching and how that how that changed you? It changed everything. Yeah. Um, the, the fire that actually made the big shift for me was the Tathra and District fire. That was in 2018. Um, and it, it was a terrifying experience to be the people standing there watching a fire come for your home and thinking we're going to be on the news for all the wrong reasons. We're going to be those people standing there saying this is all we own now, the clothes that we're wearing. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a very... Um, sobering experience it was a very traumatic experience it was it was extremely hard to be standing watching the fire come for my place and at the same time seeing the columns of smoke coming up from the neighbors homes knowing that their their homes were burning um i could see mine in the distance and that was a huge comfort for the whole four or five hours i think we stood there waiting and watching um and I, it was this thing of locking eyes on it but not wanting to you know, the police kept coming and saying, everybody move away from here. And I was like, I can't bear to not see my house because as soon as I can't see it, it's in my head, it's gone. Mm. And uh, over that same time period, we watched people evacuated from um, Tathra because that's where the fire, the, the middle front of the fire went straight through the centre of Tathra, which is a small seaside town. And the fire cuts right through to the coast, to the ocean, through the town. So it took 69 homes um, in all of that very small community. Um, and in the end, we were lucky that the fire, as it started to wrap around our place here, and we're on um, acreage in a forest, so it had come all the way through the forest and the very northernmost um, point of that fire started to wrap around our house just as the wind was predicted to change and that wind change would have driven it straight into the house. But when the wind change came, instead of it just being a change of direction, the wind stopped. And all the smoke that was in these enormous columns fell and covered everything. We couldn't see from that point on what was going on, but we were pretty sure that the house wasn't on fire and we were pretty sure that with the wind not blowing, the the whole thing would calm down. And we, and we were right. We were incredibly grateful because I'd, I'd taken nothing. I I was out when the fire started. I'm a writer. I've got a stack of journals up there that I do my writing in. All of that was sitting in the house. So I stood to lose everything. And I was lucky that I didn't, but I didn't need another reminder um, to wake me up to the fact that climate change is not a future problem. I was very aware of it, but I really did think it was something that would happen, you know, later. Uh, and I suddenly understood because it was mid-March, it had been a green summer, and this fire came out of nowhere. And the fire authorities hadn't warned anyone because they weren't expecting trouble. Um, and, yeah, it was clearly an out of ordinary event and that that just um i'm gonna say it ignited me it made me wake up to the reality that we are right in the middle of of the the, the unfolding of this crisis and that um and, and at that point i made a decision that the only way i could cope with that was to work on the problem right on the problem itself and try and address emissions reductions yeah, that's um as you 
tell that story. I'm I'm drawn back to our recent uh, climate emergency here in Lismore, where I'm based, and uh, where I was helping lift things up into people's attics, etc. And thinking that'll be fine. That's higher than the highest flood we've ever had before. And then finding ourselves two and a half metres higher than that, everything that we've just lifted going under. So so this expectation, even with the understanding of climate emergency, I've been talking about climate emergency for 30 years, to suddenly find yeah, yourself yeah. totally shocked and surprised at, at, it, at it engulfing you. It, it, it sounds like a similar moment. I was going to say, how is Tathryn now? Um, yeah, look, the town looks... Um, you know, if you just pass through the main shopping district, it lo- it looks much as it did before the fire. Um, there's a lot of people still traumatised. There's a lot of people actually still without homes, uh, permanent homes. My neighbour Jan, who who lives up the road here, and she was hers was the the first house to burn down in the Tathra fire. She only moved into her new home. Um, it would be about three months ago. So that's nearly four years since that fire. And that experience of the length of time it takes to get, and sh- and they were very well insured, but there were complexities about the rebuild because they 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 were living in similar circumstances to me with um, national park and state forest nearby, and you know the building codes changed because of the fire, the the fire bushfire attack levels changed. So um, what what I've seen since too is that we we had another fire that same year. Only a few months later, over winter that burned for nearly seven weeks, and that fire um, was not a direct threat to my home, but it did burn down three more homes, one of which um, or two of which were homes of my friends. So um, it's like this drumbeat now, just waiting for that next disaster. Um, On the other hand, I'm actually quite um, grateful that I was able to have those experiences before the Black Summer or so-called Black Summer, because those fires went over three seasons, um, because I felt like I knew what was going on by then and I understood that that was going to happen. Yeah. So I was I was psychologically prepared for it in a way that I'm glad I was because otherwise it would have been so much more traumatic. And I'd already got through the trauma of our fire um, and found a, a sort of a place to sit with the whole notion of, of climate change, um, given I was now active on the issue. So... Uh, yeah, but then seeing other communities go through this brings brings all of that grief back, all of the the trauma, the you know watching people being dislocated again and losing their their homes and their possessions and their memories, but also their communities and the neighbourhoods that are split up as people you know have no way to return to their house or their property. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's going to be a rolling, repeating experience, and I know. Having stood beside some of my friends here in Tarthra as they went through that process of losing everything, I know how how much that taxes a person and a family. Um, it, immense amount of stress. Oh, it's 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 intense, isn't it? And again, just to draw the the link uh, that's that's there between where you are and where we are, it's uh, the people here, you know, now suffering that not the physical and and, and mental health, uh, you know, impacts of that, uh, as well as all of the material loss and and pain and 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 setback. It's 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 extraordinary, and, and how long it's likely to go on is 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 uh, really quite disturbing when you take a realistic look at it but um it's it's inspired you to take some very effective action uh, you uh with the bushfire survivors for climate action uh engaged the edo the environmental defenders office to uh, take out uh 
uh, legal action. And that was uh, a year ago that you had a landmark win, which involved, uh, it sought to compel the New South Wales EPA to develop policies that measure and regulate greenhouse gases in the state. And, uh, you know, you, you, you've, that was a great success at the time. I wanted you to reflect back a little bit and, and uh, about how, what, what you've seen, the impact of that. Have you seen any impact of that in policy um, and or, or legal matters since then? And what effect do you think it might have that kind of le- that sort of uh, um, uh, litigation action? How do you see that as being an effective way to, to, to combat climate uh, emergency? I, I think we're going to, the climate emergency is so big and there are so many um, mechanisms and processes that need to change for us to make a safer climate. So I think this is one tranche of actions um, that we could take and there are many other actions that people are taking, but um, using the law to protect citizens from harm is one of the reasons we have laws. So we we were very um, keen to see where this case would take us. We were hopeful of a win, of course, but um, the, the chances of losing a case like that are always quite high. So it, it was, I uh, think, about 18 months or two years of the court process. It's very slow. It churns along. And yet the win that we got in the end was complete, resounding, um, and then it was topped off by the most amazing statement from the then Minister for the Environment, New South Wales, Matt Keane, mm. who said, because often the next thing is the the government or the the um the plaintiff uh, appeals. Mm. So we um we were waiting for that, and that's not what we got. What we got was Matt Keane saying, we not only won't be appealing, but we wholeheartedly support the win and we will use this opportunity to um, push forward on stronger climate uh, mechanisms for the EPA. So that process commenced. Um, Again, it's a little bit like turning the Titanic, I think, and I would hate to be those um, public servants to do all the work that this triggered, but they have been diligently doing that and keeping us informed along the way. We've been monitoring what's going on. We have regular meetings with them. We've got an allocated staff member now whose focus is just on the legal cases. And so we're 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 disappointed it's taken twelve months that we've reached the twelve month mark. However, we do understand why. Mm-hmm. So we're not um, we're not naive about how this process has to function, and we also want to see the best possible, um, the strongest and most effective laws. And that will come about by uh, a careful um, process of consultation with stakeholders and and working on those policies so that they are um, realistic but effective. Mm. So we're, we're hoping that, you know, later this year we we might see that draft. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's not bad if you can get that done within, you know, that that sort of time frame. I mean, it, it did, you know, the, uh, the EDO's lawyer said that it was the first time an Australian court has ruled on a government agency failing to perform a statutory duty to address climate change. So that's a a pretty significant, uh, um, uh, you know, step forward uh, in, 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 our, in our national legal system. We should move along a bit because we've got to, we're going to get short of, fall short of time if we don't be, uh, move, keep skipping along because I, one of the other interesting parts of your story is that you then went on from this launching point of becoming, you know, committed to to seeing real action on on the climate emergency to heading over to the, the COP26 in Glasgow. 
So that that, that must have been uh, a bit of a shock to the system. What what, what do you, how did you see that panning out? What how was that for you as as a fresh minted climate activist? It was very much fr- just I uh, I use the metaphor quite often of the Wizard of Oz. And this was very much the bit where you're caught up in the 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 um, the twister, and suddenly I've gone from my little you know rural life here, quietly bashing away on climate change, whisked up and over to Scotland in the middle of a pandemic. So there was literally nobody at the airport when I got there. It was just my flight with 27 people on it, and went to Scotland, and I did offset all of my emissions to double the level that I was um, required to. So um, so I got to Scotland and it's a magical country for a start. So that was part of the um, extraordinary drama of arriving there was to see Edinburgh for the first time. And and I have Scottish heritage way back, so there's a little bit of homecoming in that as well. And then to, to enter the COP, which is quite a process, like there were so many hoops I had to jump through. I had... I literally had a folder of paperwork that thick just to get me out of the country into another country and into the cop. It was intense. Um, and then to get in there and see how big the, like just the physical landscape of a cop is enormous. It would have been, uh, it felt like it was a kilometre from one end to the other and you could never see the whole thing at once. So it was this enormous sports stadium complex with, marquees set up and then these enormous halls where there was this um, sort of labyrinth of the pavilions that different nations set up to to have their display about their climate concerns or in some countries cases not which would be Australia. Just mentioning Australia and pavilions I, I heard that Australia's pavilion was sponsored by Stan- Santos is that right? Look, it wasn't sponsored by Santos, and I take full responsibility for possibly starting that rumour. However, Santos was there with an enormous display, and the pavilion is quite small. It's probably the size of my lounge room here, and I'm not going to show you how big my lounge room is because I haven't cleaned up all my mess. Um, (laughs) But that that small pavilion absolutely dominated by this big um, mock-up of a a carbon capture and storage rig, so fairy tale kind of... um, hopeful uh, technology that we don't have fully operational and that sat in the front of the 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 um the pavilion for most of the two weeks and it that it took me a, a day or two to sort of actually let that hit me that here I was at the world's biggest climate conference with all of these nations i've just been through t- three bushfires um myriad floods we're in the middle of the pandemic all these things are linked to climate change. I land here. Here's my country's representation. And the one solid fact that they've got out there for everyone to see is they they support and promote a CSG um, rig, a gas producer, Santos, who are mining and polluting using you know carbon emissions, unchecked carbon emissions, and doing the very damage that has led me to that place. So there was a there was a moment of disbelief. There was a moment of extreme rage. Mm. And then there was a moment of beyond that of, of great grief when I stood next to Pastor Ray Minicum, who's a, an Indigenous man who was there at COP26 and he he had walked over to the pavilion with me at one stage and we stood there on the outside looking in and that pavilion had no representation of Indigenous people in it 
at any time that I saw. The only representation of Indigenous people in the Australian Pavilion was in the logo of the Santos Company. And Pastor Ray and I stood there and he just started to point his finger and talk. He wasn't shouting but talk loudly and angrily about the arrogance of the government to be putting that thing right in the middle and in front of while people like us were suffering so badly. And and I thought about all the things that, that I had lost in terms of my peace of mind and that I'd seen other people lose in terms of their homes and none of it came anywhere near the devastation that I knew he was feeling and the insult that he was feeling at being so sidelined in in that place that should have been where his culture was showcased. Indeed. And, and Indigenous communities being so impacted by climate change as well. Indeed, indeed. And yeah, it's a fascinating juxtaposition to experience that there so starkly. Um, look, I want to come back to the change in government uh, at the, to wrap us up. But before I should, we should, while we're in Europe, um, I understand you've got some insights into the current, you know, drought, uh, 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 you know, heat waves and, and fires, which are sweeping across Europe, which we occasionally hear some inkling of, but it have, have, have really kind of failed to address, I think, in Australia. What, but what, how, how, what have you got to, 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 to offer on, on, on that? Well, yeah, my, my experience in Europe is, is twofold. I, I did go to um, Portugal after the COP because I needed a break and I've got some friends there who are Dutch who are living in the south of Portugal down the, in the Algarve. Um, and I'd also stayed with those friends uh, on a trip to Holland three years earlier when they had their worst at that stage ever heat wave. And I have never been so hot in my life as I was in Holland during a heat wave because homes are built to retain heat. There are myriad beautiful houses in, in the countryside with thatched roofs. It There is no awareness of bushfire. Why would there be? It's Holland. It's mm. it's a country built on reclaimed ocean. <laughs> they, they are used to it being wet and raining and wet and raining and wet and raining, but it rained while I was there so heavily that it flooded in a way that it hadn't done before. So we had both the, the extreme heat, there was a flood, um, and then I spoke to my Dutch friend and he had experienced a bushfire close to his place in Holland um, where it had it'd become a grass fire. And because the um, conditions were so unusual because of climate change, it was one that took everybody by surprise and it almost burnt down the, the little village where they were living at the time. And then cut forward, they, they've moved to Portugal and we would have seen in the news recently how badly Portugal and Spain were being hit uh, California was being hit. There were even um, you know, blazes in England, like f- wildfires in England. And these are things that we are, are completely unheard of. And I really feel for the Europeans, any communities going through that, who who haven't had the experience. Like I've grown up in Australia. This is my home country. Bushfire is part of our story, but <clears throat> as is heat. So what I saw, though, in in particularly in Holland, was communities who had no way of dealing with it. They had no experience of it in the past. I I saw dogs locked in cars in the heat that you know the police were about to break the window because not because the people were cruel or stupid. They just had never had that experience of a hot car yeah. in in Holland. Yeah. Um, it, it just um, it it really struck home how vulnerable 
even those wealthy, um, sophisticated nations are because they haven't had the experience that we're now getting with climate change. And, you know, similarly here when we've got all the rain and we've suddenly discovered that homes um, are going mouldy after the event because we haven't built them with enough ventilation to to dry out after that extreme wet. So we're seeing all the weaknesses in, in our um, built environment, in our um, social structures, in the um, emergency fire and rescue services, and we've just seen the big report coming out in uh, regarding the New South Wales um, SES and RFS. And it's not surprising because the, the landscape has changed so quickly because of climate change that our systems aren't keeping up. Yes. Well, it's interesting, as you say, to see it happening on a global scale and to have anecdotes of personal experiences that, that you know, that people can relate to. It's, it's going to hopefully bring that home to a lot of people. We are going to run out of time, so I just wanted to quickly, before we do, uh, touch on the recent elections, which demonstrated there's been a seismic shift in the direction of our nation, according to what you've written. Um, how do you see that seismic shift so far panning out, and and what what actions do you think you'd like you to ask our listeners to take uh, to help with that? I think there's a, there's a few messages. The first one would be take hope because the most significant thing we saw was the Australian electorate actually say, right, that's it, we get it, climate change is is our top issue, this is an emergency and we need governments to act accordingly. So people voted according to that. And I, I think that was the biggest um, and most important shift we're likely to see because that's what turns everybody's attention to a problem is when the community says, we nominate this, this, you know, we live in a democracy for a reason. And that's what the community said. So that's the first thing I, I would say hope. I would say hope because I've seen so many um, politicians of all stripes now talk about climate in a sensible way, acknowledge how urgent it is and, and start putting some skin in the game. They're willing to stand up for um, emissions reductions and they're willing to stand up for a transition to renewables that's just and fair and doesn't leave people um, who, who are in the old fossil fuel jobs stranded because we have to bring everybody along with this. Um, so that's my my picture of hope. But there's also a picture of um, there's a picture of determination as well. We can't just think that we've got past the um, got past the hump, got over the hump. It's it's early days in in the actual doing of the work. So we've got to crack on. And that's the that's the message of urgency. Um, if we stop pushing now, we don't we don't help the, those politicians who are willing to to make the change. We've got to back them up. We've got to keep pushing them because it's it's the community who will drive them to act as urgently as we need them to. Okay. So ring your MP. That's my first thing. Ring your MP, make a time, tell them you want to talk to them about um, your concerns about climate change and and you want to talk to them because it's impacting you. You only need to go in and tell your story and that you need change because of what's happening to you and happening to your community. And, you know, you don't need to be a climate scientist to do that. That's an interesting point. You don't need to be a climate scientist. You don't even need to be a climate activist anymore. You just need to be a person who's in the midst of a climate emergency. It's, it's a, it's a exactly. very valuable insight, actually. Thank you. Well, Joe, look, this is fascinating. I could chat with you for hours, but um, I know you've got time constraints and I, so do I. So we, we shall have to wrap it up there. But please uh, stay in touch if there are events that are going on uh, down your way and with, uh, with the, uh, the, the survivors, the bushfire survivors for climate action 
uh, please get in touch and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk again. Huge pleasure, Sean. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, look, I could I could talk endlessly about this. And if people do want to know more or talk more, they can just check us out on our website, Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action. So thank you. No worries. Uh-huh.